Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This is The Weeds. I'm John Glenhill. I remember the first time I found out about unions. I was in elementary school and we were doing a unit about the Midwest. I'd learned about Detroit and the automobile industry, including unions. That night at the dinner table, while we were talking about what we did that day, my parents asked me how I would run a company like that. This younger version of me, knowing very little about the value of a dollar, came in low, and I mean (laughs) criminally low. Like, I'm talking three bucks an hour low. Upon hearing this, my dad got up from the table and literally started picketing me. He grabbed a notebook, made a sign that said, the birds say cheap, cheap, and started marching around the dining room. I inevitably caved to his demands and brought the imaginary pay for my imaginary employees above minimum wage. I also threw in an on-site childcare center for employees after my mom suggested it. I'll say, my evolution from corporate overlord to champion of the worker was a fast one. That's definitely not how it works in reality, but this year, I took note of some new energy I saw. We saw the United Auto Workers, the Writers Guild, and SAG-AFTRA take on their employers. And they won, for the most part. In many ways, 2023's labor wins are the result of a behind-the-scenes campaign to reorganize the organizers. And we're going to get into that. But I also wanted to know if all this energy is enough to reverse the decades-long decline we've seen in union membership. For this conversation, I knew just who to call. My name's Kim Kelly, and I'm a labor journalist and author of the book Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. Okay, I am not exaggerating when I say this. Kim is that girl when it comes to labor. She's not just a reporter. She's also an organizer and a member of the Writers Guild. Quick note, I, like the rest of my non-management colleagues here at Vox, am a member of the Writers Guild, too. Kim first got interested in covering labor when her newsroom at the time was organizing. Two weeks after I got officially hired, a couple coworkers pulled me aside and said, hey, we're thinking about unionizing. And my first response was, oh, thank God. 
because I, I knew that a union was a good thing. I come from a union family. I knew that unions were a good thing for a lot of workers. I just never thought I'd get the chance to join one because I write about heavy metal on the internet. I didn't think, you know, local 666 was necessarily out there <laughs> for me, uh, but it kind of was. We, uh, we joined the Writers Guild of America East. I got super involved in all of all the organizing I could and, and all the bargaining sessions, all the meetings, the committees, endless, endless meetings that come with organizing and joining a union. And until I found myself going to way more union activities than shows, and I kind of joked that Labor became my new favorite band. Mm. That's kind of where all my energy started going. But it was still my job to come back to work and sit in the chaos office and, you know, interview Corpse Grinder. So I was trying to figure out how I could kind of direct that energy. And I was already freelancing because I were getting paid nothing anyway. So I always freelanced. And I started pitching around little labor related stories here and there to see if I could. And really Teen Vogue was my big break in that way. And by the time I got laid off in 2019, I decided, you know what, I'm going to try and be a labor reporter, if that's a job that you could have. And about a year later, I signed the contract to write my book. So I guess it worked out okay. You were introduced to labor, I think, in ways that a lot of us were. Like, growing up, my mom would always tell me about how, like, my grandpa had this good union job. Like, that's how I, they were able to, like, navigate the great migration and kind of work their way into the black middle class. And, you know, I was working at WAMU when they started organizing for SAG-AFTRA. And I remember voting yes to organize that union. And so I think that's, like, the way a lot of people get their introduction. But it feels like 2023 in particular, has been a big year for labor. And there have been just hundreds of labor actions this year alone. Can you run through some of those strikes, especially like off the top of your head? Give us a list of sort of the big ones. God, it's it's so funny because it's literally my job to keep track of these things and I can barely keep track, <laughs> which is a good thing though, right? I think the uh, the Cornell Labor Tracker the latest number on that, which is just a great project people should keep an eye on, is like 404 strikes this year as of today. Uh, some of the biggest ones I can think of, of course, the UAW stand-up strike. We've had the Medieval Times strike, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette folks who are still on strike. Uh, thousands of Unite Here hotel workers in California have been striking on and off. Starbucks workers have been striking on and off. We had the big Hollywood shutdown where the Writers Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA came together to uh, bargain these two new big contracts. We had the tail end of the Warrior Met Coal strike, which I spent two years covering in Alabama. We had like 75,000 Kaiser Permanente healthcare workers with SAIU go out. We had the Portland, Oregon teachers strike. Uh, the dancers at Star Garden, one of the that historic strip club that unionized last year. Grad student workers here in Philly at Temple went out. Like the hits kept coming. Like, I'm sure, I feel like I'm going to get a press release in about five minutes telling me about the next <laughs> one, you know? <laughs> like, people are fed up. What are the most significant ones in respect to what they mean for workers overall? I get excited about every strike. Every strike <laughs> is important. But you obviously really had to hand it to the UAW this year. The strike that they led against the big three automakers, Ford, GM, and Stellantis, which makes Chrysler and a couple other iconic brands. They had this six-week strike that had a very 
kind of unique and clever militant strategy that we haven't really seen utilized, at least in this century before, uh, in which they had this kind of surprise strike tactic. They didn't all go out at once. That would have been a huge deal. That would have been like 150,000 workers all at once. And that would have been fun for some of us, right? But that would have depleted the strike fund right away. And it would have, you know, it would have been a pretty big logistical nightmare, right? So instead, they launched these tactical intermittent strikes, like that they would announce every Friday through these like Facebook live streams that just scare the hell out of these, these uh, auto CEOs. It was really wild to see. Why do you think the UAW strike was so successful? Like, and what about this year feels new or different than the previous years? Because, you know, labor has a long history in this country, but this this feels different. Is it different? It does feel different, doesn't it? It's almost hard to quantify, right? It's honestly kind of vibes-based in a way. Like, there's so much energy and enthusiasm and interest and really militancy. I think that's kind of the the word of the year. And I think that's a big factor in why the UAW is able to crush it so hard. Because the UAW has a really complicated past. There's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of top-down, kind of iron-fist-type administration. And that all changed this year when they elected their first-ever direct vote election, they elected Sean Fain, this new reformer-style president. And he made it very clear from the beginning this was not going to be a sweetheart deal. He was not going to go in there and shake hands with these auto bosses and play nice. This was war, and that's the way they played it. Mm. They pushed and pushed for things that, going in, they were told, oh, that's impossible. That'll never happen. We'll never be able to bring electric vehicle plans under the master agreement. Mm. But they did. Like, the thought of forcing... Uh, an automaker to reopen a closed factory to bring back union jobs. It was just totally a pie-in-the-sky thing, but they did it. Like, it's just that sheer audacity and that willingness to go hard and make enemies. I think that's just such an important moment for so many of us to see, because, like, these people are not our friends. Your boss is not your friend. The billionaires are not our friends. I think that's something that is just something that, that's important for people to keep in mind as they continue to organize and fight. And I think that this example has really given a lot of people a lot of hope. I think we're going to see more, uh, you know, no more Mr. Nice Guy style striking and organizing in the next few years because of the UAW. So the UAW had this huge successful strike, but we've also seen a lot of these strikes sort of rise up in pop culture and also impact people sort of more in their day-to-day lives as far as what they're consuming. I mean, there's been Starbucks. There was and the attempt with Amazon. There was Hollywood with SAG-AFTRA and WGA. And unions have just very much been a part of our pop culture this year. What does that kind of visibility mean for organized labor? I think this is such a crucial thing to note. Because so many strikes and so much organizing, so many campaigns happen in places that the public aren't aren't necessarily going to see or pay attention to. For better or very much for worse, people tend to kind of only pay attention to stuff that impacts them. Mm. You know, they got a lot of stuff going on. People got rent. People have kids. People have a lot of shit to do. You're not necessarily going to be up on the latest labor dispute unless it filters into your life in some way. Starbucks? 
as bad as their coffee is, almost everybody's been to a Starbucks, right? <laughs> you know, sorry, I'm a tea guy. Uh, but, you know, uh, Amazon, especially early in the pandemic, and still so many people order like everything about their entire daily lives from Amazon, which they probably shouldn't. You know, there's other stores, but still, I know some people, it is, it's what they need to do. That's so Amazon is like a part of your life. Those boxes, that box in your front hall, that represents hours and hours of people's labor and blood, sweat and tears, you know, finding out how they're treated, how they're paid. You know, when it came to the Hollywood strike, people were like, A, I'm not getting my show. I don't like that. <laughs> or, like, or I'm not or Dune is going to be pushed back. I hate that. But then I think it kind of just showed people a different side of the actors and celebrities and, and whatnot that they they turn to for entertainment when folks are saying like, oh, we're we're getting a raw deal. We're not being treated the way we need to be. We're not being paid the way we need to be. The people that maybe aren't in the headlines are not making Hollywood money, even though they're doing Hollywood labor. Mm. I think that had an impact on people, especially, I, I think the Hollywood one may, really helped for younger folks too, who maybe aren't necessarily thinking about what the Teamsters are up to or what, you know, concrete workers in Seattle are doing. But they pay attention to their people and their shows. And it's until we get the the badly needed resurgence in pro-union working class programming that we need, uh, HBO, etc., I think this is a pretty good start. <laughs> All right, so the narrative around labor tells one story, but union density tells another. The numbers versus the vibes. That's next. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. 
you can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. We're back. It's the weeds. I'm John Glenn Hill. So the support for labor unions has shifted over the years. We've seen it ebb and we've seen it flow. But the numbers are showing us a different story. Why is that? How do you explain low union density? The vibes are killing it. The numbers, not so much. Um, That's always kind of the bummer part of discussing the labor movement and where we are and where all this energy is going. Because we're still only dealing with 10% union density. And to make sure it had the definition right, the union density, it conveys the number of trade union members who are employees as a percentage of the total number of employees in a given industry or country. Thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> and, and it wasn't always like this. Like we used to have, I think one of the highs was in the 30s. We are unfortunately not in that space right now because honestly in the U.S., it's still really hard to join a union, even if you want to. There are still so many roadblocks to people that even just like the people that want to organize their workplace. It's not as simple as just signing a union card and being like, cool, we're in a union. There's all this red tape and all these processes that employers are able to use to slow down unionizing efforts or bust them up, union busting, to intimidate or threaten or convince or cajole workers out of organizing. That's union avoidance, which is such an ugly, just what an ugly thing to be. But there's a whole industry out there of high-paid consultants that employers can bring in to basically convince their workers, oh, you don't need a union. So that's what union membership looks like now. I want you to take us back to the peak of union membership, like when membership was in its, you know, real hot girl era. What did that look like? <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking about like, what decade would that be? Labor historians and academics who studied this for way longer than me probably have a million different answers for this. But I feel like the 1930s are one of those moments where people are like, oh, that's when unions were like killing it. There was massive strikes. There was really high union density. That's when we had a lot of these iconic moments Speaking of the UAW, that's when they had the Flint sit-down strike that really launched kind of the current idea of what an industrial strike looks like. And that was really in the New Deal era. I think one of the reasons that that was such a moment for labor is that it was finally legal to join a union. Uh, well, that'll do it. <laughs> the Wagner Act in 1935, that was, that was passed. Essentially, it just enshrined the legal right to organize and collectively bargain with your employer. Before that, it was a total free-for-all. Like, that's why it was such a, we saw so many tumultuous moments, especially in the 1800s and the 1900s. God, the 1900s, I was born in the 1900s. The <laughs> earlier 1900s. <laughs> because even workers that wanted to unionize, they didn't have any kind of guarantee that they could do it. There weren't any protections. There wasn't any legal standing. They had to literally fight for it. Like in the case of coal miners in Appalachia, very famously, they had the whole mine wars era about it in the 1900s, 1920s, when coal miners literally went to war against the feds and against the mine bosses for the right to unionize. 
Like, it has been a really difficult slog in this country for workers to achieve their right to representation. During that same era, we saw the passage of the Fair Labor Standards Act, which established the first minimum wage and the 40-hour week. That was huge because it took us about a century to get to that point. Like, there were teen girls and young women in New England that were trying to organize for the 10-hour workday a century before then. There were anarchists in Chicago, like Lucy Parsons and Albert Parsons and the Haymarket Martyrs, that were fighting for the eight-hour workday in 1886. It took a very, very long time for us to get even these basic things. Like, if you enjoy having a weekend or having some semblance of a minimum wage, even though the subminimum wage is still a massive issue for so many service workers and disabled workers and incarcerated workers in the country. Back in the 90s, the uh, Association of Flight Attendants, I think they're the first union to win spousal benefits Mm. for LGBTQ couples because so many of their members were queer. That was something they pushed for. Like, thank unions for that. There's so many historic and important rights that we enjoy now or that many of us enjoy now that go back to labor. So what happened? Why is it so hard to unionize today when, you know, we had this peak of the labor movement where we were able to get so many things changed? There's really two significant moments or aspects that really contributed a ton. First, we had the Taft-Hartley Act in the 1940s. That was a law that essentially hamstrung the labor movement in response to this massive strike wave we saw in 45 and 46. Essentially, it outlawed sympathy strikes or solidarity strikes, which to explain that, it's like, okay, if your local coffee shop was on strike, right? And then the bagel shop next door was like, oh, we support them. We're going to go on strike too. That would be illegal. That's a sympathy strike. Mm. There'd be a lot of potential there because there is so much solidarity and empathy between different industries and different workplaces. We could really cause some damage, which is, of course, why they uh, made it illegal. And the one other aspect of this, which I think is probably one of the big ones, Reagan. (laughs) In the 80s, there was this very significant moment where air traffic controllers who were organized, 11,000 striking airport control PACO workers, they came up against Ronald Reagan. And he decided to fire them all and hire tons of scabs who are workers that come in and take union workers' jobs. So when you see Scabby the rat, the blow-up rat outside, that's yeah. that's what that is yeah. referring to. It means like something nefarious is going on in there. If you see Scabby, you know, someone, someone messed up. <laughs> but yeah, essentially, Cliff Notes, big strike was going on. Reagan stepped in, fired all the strikers, brought in scabs, blacklisted those striking workers, and really just showed that this kind of long-standing agreement that, well, not agreement, but just kind of long-standing convention between employers and labor was that hiring replacement workers is kind of a bridge too far. It was considered so confrontational that companies wouldn't really do that during strikes. Reagan changed that. And now that established a new norm that we're still dealing with. Employers will still threaten striking workers with, okay, we'll just get rid of you, or we'll move the factory, or we'll find some other way to get back at you. Like it really just ushered in a new era of acrimony and 
and just employers not giving a shit about how their employees perceive them during these labor conflicts. Nevertheless, there is momentum. Up next, how a new era of organizers are reorganizing labor. This week on The Pitch, we're breaking form and introducing a new segment on our show called The Exit. You had your first exit at 18 years old, your second at 24. And then six months later, you start another company. This one's called Shipped. The company just exploded overnight. And then you realize, all right, we need more money. So you went out to Sand Hill Road. I'm not a West Coast type. I didn't have a feel for the game, but I figured it out really fast. What did you think when you threw out the number? It is very easy to get distracted and excited and thinking about what you're going to do with your millions. I ran the company out of money. I know my CFO and everybody was thinking, this is nuts. Oh, Shipped. <laughs> do you have any regrets about Shipped? How Bill Smith, a high school dropout from Birmingham, Alabama, started, scaled, and sold his startup for $550 million in three years. That's this week. Go right now and subscribe to The Pitch wherever you listen to podcasts. It's The Weeds. I'm John Glenn Hill. We're here talking with journalist, author, and organizer Kim Kelly about the year in labor. Earlier, we talked about the United Auto Workers strike and the UAW in particular, as we've discussed, it is having a moment. In March, they elected a new leader, Sean Fain. What can you tell us about him? I love Sean Fain. I think he's great. He's he's just such a dude. Like he's been an auto worker. <laughs> he's from he's from Kokomo, Indiana. He's been an auto worker for 30 years. He's been super involved in the union for a very long time. He worked his way up kind of through the ranks, and he's always been a little bit of a rabble rouser. He won his election by about 500 votes. Mm. It's a really tight squeeze, right? But it's also, like, he was not supposed to win. He was this kind of fiery reformer going up against this incredibly entrenched old boys club that were used to the kickbacks, used to not having to do too much, used to sweetheart deals with companies. He came in as part of this reform slate, part of this movement, Unite All Workers for Democracy. There were a couple other folks that were uh, that were elected during that moment, too. But he's just, he's a no-bullshit guy who really does not care about playing nice. He cares about the workers. He is one of the workers. He really wants to push this union as far as it can go. He's brought in this just great new militant attitude to a union that's been around for so long. I think he is great. And I think a lot of people agree with me, given all the memes and T-shirts and general accolades he's gotten from both the rank and file and from other folks in the labor movement. Can you talk a little bit about Fane's stand-up strike strategy? How is that different from your typical strike? So in a typical strike, when contract negotiations break down, the union leadership will poll its workers and ask for a strike authorization vote. Basically ask the workers for permission to call a strike if it gets to that point. And then if it gets to that point, they'll call a strike. All the workers at that workplace will go out 
And they'll continue negotiating with the company while putting on pressure via that strike by shutting down production, by causing a ruckus, getting public support, all the things that go into a successful strike. What Sean Fain and the UAW did this time, they called the strike authorization. They made it known they were ready to walk. But when that moment came, all 150,000 of those workers didn't walk out. But some did. They did it in a very tactical way. They hit like certain companies' biggest factories, but it wasn't all at once. It was bit by bit by bit, location by location by location. And the employers didn't know where they were going to strike next. Mm. They basically found out that day or that week, Sean Fain would hold these, these weekly Facebook Live broadcasts where he would kind of announce who was next, who was up on the strike list that week. Like I mentioned before, if the employers had played ball, if there'd been a productive week of bargaining, all right, well, GM wouldn't get hit that week, but Stellantis and Ford might. Or if the next week Ford played ball, all right, give him a break this week. It really kept the employers on their toes and it kept the workers so energized and excited to take part. And it kept their strike fund, which they've been around for a minute. They have a pretty healthy strike fund, but it would have been immediately depleted if all the members had walked out at once. This way... They made sure their workers were taken care of. They were smart about their budget and they scared the hell out of those employers. It's kind of a win, win, win. And they won. <laughs> Do you foresee other industries and other unions using this strategy? Not every union has the infrastructure and the resources and the, the sheer scale of the UAW. They're a pretty big union. But there are others that could absolutely do that. Like imagine if the USCW, United Food and Commercial Workers, who represent tons of grocery stores around the country, imagine if they did that. If all of a sudden things broke down and your local grocery store was closed and then the next one over was, the next one over was. I mean, the UAW had a kind of a specific situation where they have this master agreement with these these three big companies that covers all of the workplaces in under those companies' auspices. So they were lucky there, but I think even just introducing this as a tactic, you can get creative with it. And I really hope other unions look at what they did here and find ways to make that work within their own industries, because obviously it's effective. Okay, so we have new leadership, we have these new tactics, and labor's gotten a positive bump. But what would need to change in order to increase union membership even more? There was the introduction of this piece of legislation. I think they've been trying to do it for years now, um, called the PRO Act. And that would really solve a lot of these issues if it ever actually made it into law. The PRO Act, it would expand workers' un ability to join organized unions by implementing this system called card check. If a majority of workers sign those cards, then boom, you're a union. You have to, your employer has to recognize you and start bargaining. That's the easiest way to organize a union, but that's not how it works right now. But outside of the PRO Act, I mean, I would love to see, if I was the queen of labor, I would love the to queen see of labor. the queen of labor. But <laughs> I, mean, I would really love to see some real work done on worker misclassification. I would really love to see updates and reforms to these old labor laws we're talking about because even some of the best ones we got, like the Wagner Act, that discriminates against people, against entire classes of workers, agricultural workers, domestic workers. And that is due to 
just sheer racism, like going back to when it was implemented, the way they got it through was by allowing racist Southern lawmakers to carve out agricultural workers and domestic workers who at that time were predominantly professions led by Black men and Black women. And now like the demographics have changed, but it's still predominantly professions that are led by low-income workers of color, a lot of whom are immigrants or have undocumented status. Like those workers deserve every right and protection that every other worker has. And there's just been so little movement to really protect them in a real way. If I could wave my my scepter, I would get on that. I would love to dig into one of the critiques of the PRO Act. Like, one of the major critiques we hear is that it's harmful to small businesses. And, you know, you and I are both members of a union. We're both, I think we're both Writers Guild. Shout out. Um, But at the same time, like there are these critiques that it harms like these smaller businesses. And a lot of times when we think of unionizing, we're thinking of the Amazon that has like billions of dollars. We're thinking of Hollywood, which has so much money flowing throughout it. But these smaller businesses, they don't have the same resources. And I'm curious why small businesses in particular are so against this? And also, like, what is the fix? What is the middle ground? Because not every company is this, like, billion-dollar company. I think that line of thinking, that line of reasoning, just sort of pauses that unions are a bad thing or, like, Mm. an onerous thing, that there's something that's going to cost a company money, whether it's Amazon or it's, like, the coffee shop down the street. But so much of what workers are organizing for, especially now, obviously people tend to want to raise. You should be giving your workers regular raises anyway. But so many of the issues that people are organizing around now, especially younger workers, especially workers who are coming from more diverse backgrounds, like their workplace safety issues, there's transparency, there's a say in what happens. The smaller the workplace, the closer you all are, Right. I mean, Starbucks is a huge national company, right? But they force people to organize store by store. There's been a lot of organizing by queer and trans workers just around protections and basic respect on the job. There's so many different things that you can bargain for in a union contract. It's not just wages. It's not like, let's price gouge our employer. Like, let's send Jeff out of business. Nobody wants that. People who work, especially these smaller places, like they... They're organizing because they want to make their jobs better, because they want to stay. They could just leave. If they didn't care about that place or about the people they work with, they would quit. That's one of the biggest, I think, misunderstandings is that people that organize are trying to make a workplace a better place to be so they can stay there and continue making money for their owners, but continue being able to survive themselves. It's just sort of, I think, a strange hangover of the Republican insistence that unions are these outside agitators that come in and rile up workers and want to siphon all the money out. Like, that's not what it is. Like, half the time, it's just a group of people who work somewhere who are like, oh, these specific things about this place suck. What if we do something to fix it, you know? Yeah, unions aren't a big, scary, expensive thing unless you really, really try and bust them up and you're a giant company with tons of resources, then you might have a big fight in your hands. So aside from the PRO Act and also the misclassification issue, what comes next for the labor movement? Like, what are we looking ahead to in 2024 and also beyond to come from this? 
hopefully what we're going to do with all this energy and emotion and enthusiasm is keep organizing because we can't get those scary numbers up until we organize more unions. We can't build power without organizing more unions. We can't win better wages and safer working conditions and better benefits for people without organizing more unions. There are very few universal experiences in this world, I think. And work, labor, is something that almost everybody experiences. Almost everybody has a job or had a job or will have a job. Labor organizing is one of the few places where people can find common ground, no matter who they are, where they're coming from. Because most people show up at work, you, you don't pick your coworkers, you just have to figure it out. And organizing is one way to get to know the people you work with. Even if they're very different from you, you can find that common ground and realize, okay, we got to make things better here because everyone here deserves it. Even if we see the world a little bit different, even if we argue, everyone deserves better. I think just that understanding is one of the most important things we've seen come out of this moment. So many workers across the country have realized, oh, I deserve better. And wow, look at all these examples of other workers in other industries who have fought and won and scared the hell out of their employers and gotten big wage increases or gotten these great benefits or, you know, lived to fight another day. I think one of the most crucial things that have come out of this moment is this increase in understanding among people that they are allowed to unionize, they are allowed to strike, they are allowed to push back. And not only are they allowed, they owe it to themselves. And that is the kind of thing you cannot take away. You cannot scare people out of valuing themselves and their labor. That's the biggest twist in the story. Once you realize that you deserve much more than you're getting, no boss can take that away from you. Kim Kelly, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds. Thank you so much for having me. Kim isn't the only one with an eye towards the future when it comes to the labor movement. I'm also interested in seeing whether this is momentum or just a moment. That's all for us today. Thanks to Kim Kelly for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Erica Wong engineered this episode. Kelsey Lannon fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, Jonquilyn Hill. This podcast is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep it that way by going to vox.com give.